Well, we're glad to be with you today. Thank you for letting us come and share with you. I'd ask you to turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2, if you would. I want to talk about how to change the world. How to change the world. I think if you've been paying attention to the news, uh, the TV, the Internet, the newspapers, whatever, uh, you probably have figured it out. Our world is desperately in need of change. Amen? Things are all over the world crazy. If you had the opportunity to change the world, how would you do it? Well, one of the things we might do is just say, come, Lord Jesus, <laughs> come quick. You know, that would certainly make a difference. But how would you do it? You know, there have been people who have tried to change the world. I can think all the way back, not that I was there. I'm thinking history, <laughs> okay? 1919. Uh, there was a group got together and formed what they called the League of Nations. Remember that? Some of you older folks remember the League of Nations? Started in 1919, 42 countries signed this charter that they were going to really change the world. Well, about 10 years later, it started falling apart. And they couldn't do a thing. Didn't do a thing. Uh, world War II came. They didn't even put out an announcement against it. <laughs> Uh, League of Nations was totally defunct by 1941 when the Pearl Harbor was attacked and we got into the war. But then at the end of the war, 1945, another group said, let's, get, let's just do this, let's make it work this time. And they started the United Nations. Fifty nations got together and signed this charter and then Poland came along just a little while later, made it 51 that, that signed the original charter of the United Nations. Today, there's 193 nations that are part of the United Nations. But I think everybody that knows anything about it would say they haven't done much. They, you know, and you take countries like Bosnia, Kosovo, Cambodia, Haiti, a lot of these different countries have pleaded with the United Nations to try to help them stop child slavery, girl prostitution, so forth. United Nations hasn't done a thing. United Nations can't even figure out how to define terrorism. I think the best thing that's happened is our president spoke this last week to him, gave the best speech of his life, I think, to the United Nations. I don't know if it'll change anything, but uh, at least we're, we're trying at least to do something. But other people have tried other ways. They've tried doing it through sports. World Olympics. Oh, if we can play together, we'll stay together, you know, type of thing. I don't think that's worked too well either. So what will work? How are we going to change the world? I think that probably we could learn from one little group of Jewish people about 2,000 years ago that started to change the world. And the very first day that they started, there were 3,000 people that were added to their group. A couple of days later, there were 2,000 more added to the group. And the thing has been growing ever since. Who were they? Well, just a little group of Jewish people that were gathered together in Jerusalem actually for what they called the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks, Feast of Harvest, a lot of different names. See, the Jews have three main feasts that they hold every year, annually. The first one, the Feast of Passover. They remember when that death angel passed over when they were in, in uh, slavery in Egypt, remember? And they had to put the lamb, slay the lamb and put the blood on the doorpost or the lintel. And, 
And the death angel, if he saw that, he would pass over that family. If he didn't see the blood, then he would slay the firstborn child in that home. And that was what caused the Egyptians to finally say to Israel, okay, go, get out, go. So they celebrate that feast of Passover. And then 50 days later, Pentecost, Pente being the five, 50, uh, 50 days later, they celebrate the harvest. And they have a great time. And that's what they were doing. They were gathered in Jerusalem for this feast of harvest. Jews from all over. The third feast that they do, by the way, uh, follows that is the, the Feast of Tabernacles. What they do is they go outside and they build these little booths. And they would go and sit in and li- sleep in those little booths for seven days, trying to remember what their forefathers went through as they came through the wilderness, the 40 years of wilderness wanderings. And they, they, they would have a feast to remember that. But this feast of Passover, on this particular occasion in Jerusalem, something very special happened. The Holy Spirit of God fell upon these believers. Those who believed in Christ, believed in him as the Son of God, their Messiah, Savior, and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And God began to use them to change the world. And by the way, this church is an example of what they started back there. Christians getting together, establishing a church And it began to grow. Here in Acts chapter 2, we see some very special things. And I want you to follow with me. If if I I didn't know how to do this one. Does that move? Ah, There it is. How to change the world. And uh, so you've had my introduction now. Okay. There were several things that I see in this passage. Look at Acts chapter 2, starting with verse 46. Uh, No, I'm sorry, 41. I got to get these out. How many of you have to... Okay, just. Then those who were glad received his word, verse 41, and were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. And it says in verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Now, the apostles' doctrine, I'm saying what you need for this, if you're going to do it, is, and I know your notes, I I turned it around because I wanted to put the emphasis on the Bible. Here you have the Bible, the Apostles' Doctrine, and if you need it, a pair of reading glasses. So I've got a Bible and a pair of reading glasses. If you don't need them, be thankful, but let me just say it, there's a day coming. You'll need them. Okay. A Bible. Now, obviously, they did not have the complete written revelation of the New Testament, the Bible for the apostolic doctrine, but they did have the Apostles'. And they were coming and they were teaching and preaching what Christ had taught them to give. And they were getting the apostles' doctrine. And they continued steadfastly in that. And then before they died, God told them to write things down so that others could have it. And so now we have the New Testament where Paul and others were writing things like to the church at Rome or the church at Corinth. Romans, Corinthians, you know, to all these different churches. And then to individuals, Timothy, Titus, etc. And so the church was learning the apostles' doctrine Through these writings today, we have the New Testament. We have the Old Testament that we can learn from as well. But they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. The world-changing movement called Christianity has gone forward not on special techniques, but on the preaching of the Word of God. And I want you to know I pray for you as you are in the business of searching for a new pastor, that you will look for a man who really knows and believes and teaches the word of God. Amen? If you're not excited about that, you're in trouble. 
Okay? Knows that, the word of God. Okay. So, we've got to be a learning church. The Bible. But there's also another thing in this passage. I want you to notice, look on in verse 42. They continue steadfastly in apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Well, what's fellowship? Okay? A welcome mat. A welcome mat out there to make people feel welcome so you can have this fellowship. Uh, I can't begin to stress to you, obviously, the importance of the doctrine, knowing that, but also this business of really being a church where people can feel welcome. Uh, you being friendly, reaching out. I uh, want to read something to you. I ran across this not too long ago. Okay, Bear with me. One Sunday, an old, morning cow- an old cowboy one Sunday morning entered a church just before the services were to begin. Now, although the old man and his clothes were spotlessly clean, he wore jeans, a denim shirt, and boots that were very worn and ragged. In his hand, he carried a worn-out old hat and an equally worn-out Bible. The church he entered, though, was a very upscale, exclusive church, upper-class part of the city. Know what I mean? You can shake your head. It's okay. It was the largest and most beautiful church this old cowboy had ever been in. The people of the congregation were all dressed with very expensive clothes and accessories. As the cowboy took a seat, the others kind of moved away from him a little bit. No one greeted him, no one spoke to him, no one welcomed him. They were all appalled at his appearance and didn't attempt to hide it. The preacher gave a long sermon all about hell and fire and brimstone, and and then he spent a long time on lecture about how much money the church needed to do God's work. As the old cowboy was leaving the church, the preacher approached him and said to him, Sir, I wonder if you'd do me a favor. He said, Sure, Pastor, what is it? He said, before you come back here next Sunday, would you pray and ask God what he would have you wear? Okay, I'll do that. Well, next Sunday he showed up for services wearing the old blue jeans and the old denim shirt, hat in his hand, the old hat and Bible. Once again, he was completely shunned and ignored by the people. The preacher approached him and said, excuse me, I thought I asked you to pray and ask God about what you should wear before you came back here. He said, well, I did, Pastor. I prayed. I asked him. Well, what did he say? Well, sir, he told me he didn't have a clue what I should wear because he's never been in your church. (laughs) I don't know if you ever do much traveling around into other churches and times and seeing, but... You know, i got to be honest with you. I've been kind of surprised at some of the churches that I've gone into, and they don't know I'm a preacher. And sometimes I don't wear a suit. I don't go get blue denims and that kind of stuff. But so I, And I come in. I have gone into Baptist churches, and not one person spoke to me. And I go out, and even the pastor, I go to shake his hand, and he'll, yeah, And he's over talking to somebody else. How excited would you be about coming back to this church? I've got a man, had a man in my church. He died on me. Crazy guy just in a hurry to get out of here. But anyway, John Merritt's his name. 
He's with the Lord now, but John would greet people at the door. He had the biggest smile you ever saw, and he just, hey, how you doing? And we got people give you 40 hugs before you can get out of church. They want you to know we love you, we care about you, we're concerned about you. We want to be not only a learning church, we want to be a caring church. Folks, you'd be amazed how many people will come to church and you may not know of the hurt that's going on in their heart. They may be having problems at work, losing a job. They may be having problems in their marriage. They may be having problems with their kids, finances, etc. all kinds of hurts. They feel like a failure. I know I've talked to them. But they're coming to your church and they're looking for peace. They're looking for just... I'm going to use an illustration, and if you ever tell anybody in the GRB that I said this, I'll deny it. Have you ever watched Cheers on television? No, you wouldn't do anything like that. Uh, But it was an old program about a bar. And people would come in there to Cheers, and they'd come in brand new. Nobody knew them. Hey, how are you? Come on in. Sit down here. Why can't we do that? I don't mean drink. Don't misunderstand. But why can't we just love people like that? Now, your church may be the most loving church I've ever been in. But I want my church in Tacoma to be that. And uh, just to be really a welcome mat out. To feel that way. Amen? Okay, we're going to get there. By the way, I want to tell you one illustration. Uh, This happened at Bethany Baptist Church before I was their pastor. Bethany Baptist in Kenmore, Bothell area. Um... there was a lady that had been a, a nurse, an a army nurse, whatever, army nurse, I think. Her name was Jenny Adams. Have you ever heard of her? Missionary. But anyway, she was an army nurse, not saved, got out because of uh, she'd gotten hurt in some way, and they gave her a discharge, you know, because of it. And she was in Bothell. She was driving by. It was a nighttime, and they had the doors opened in the church, and uh, they were singing. And she just loved to hear that music. So she parked her car out there, tied up her dog outside, came in, sat in the back, wearing, uh, what do you call that thing? Overalls. Wearing overalls with her cigarettes right here in the pocket. And she sat back there listening to the music. Well, afterwards, the people just loved on her. We're so glad to have you here. We're going to be having a dinner tomorrow, and we want you to come and, and so forth. But she came back. And it wasn't about the second or third Sunday she came, she got saved. And uh, threw the cigarettes away. And then she talked to the pastor one day, and she said, what am I going to do with my life? And he said, have you ever thought of going to Bible college? And she was probably 30 years of age at that time. Go to Bible college? What are you going to study? The Bible. Well, how long is this Bible college? Four years. Four years? She said, man, I've been in in nurses training school, and i got books that thick, and I'd have to do it in two weeks. How am I going to do that one for four years? Well, you just go to find out. (laughs) She went, took her dog, went, and was there four years, graduated, and went to Peru as a missionary. And she would walk up into the hills of Peru, And she would minister to the people and she was leading people to Christ and she was training men. She was training men who became pastors and they would go back into their villages all over Peru and preach what she had taught them and then they'd come back and get more teaching and go back and 
Jenny Adams probably trained more than 200 pastors as a missionary out there. All because there was a church that loved on her. I welcome Matt out. Well, here's a church that's a learning church and a caring church. Let me give you another one. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says that they not only continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, but in the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread, that's, that's talking about the communion service, the Lord's Supper. It's a time of real worship. Now, I have to be honest with you. Our church has communion once a month. Do you do it? How often do you do it here? Once a month? There are some churches that do it every month, and that's fine. But I have found even doing it once a month, sometimes I can become almost, I don't know, casual about it. Here we do it again. One day it hit me, and here's how it hit me. Uh, I, I love to do yard work. I had a house out in this one particular place, Ording, and uh, I love to do my backyard and get it looking just right and all the trimmed up and the bushes cut just right and everything. And I got up one morning and I'm looking out there and it looked like somebody was trying to start a nine-hole golf course in my backyard. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Little gophers. You know? <laughs> so I tried to drown them out. I tried to smoke them out, gas them out. Couldn't get it done. I am frustrated. I, they get clean up one and they come up another. I'm sitting there looking at this one morning, and I, I said to my wife, I said, you know, I wish, I wish I could become a gopher for a day. I could go down in there, and I could talk to them. I know gopheries. <laughs> I'd be able to talk to them and say, hey, guys, why don't you go out to the area behind out there? That's not it. You know, you do all the holes you want out there. Just leave my yard alone, and I won't try to kill you. I thought about that, and I thought, I wouldn't want to do that. I mean, those things are ugly. I'm a good-looking man. I don't, you know, I don't want to be, do that. And besides, in the dirt, all that dirt down there, and so forth. And God said to me, Mr. Godwin, that's what Jesus did for you. He left heaven's glory, the God of all creation, laid aside his crown, his royal robe, he came and became a man, the God-man, to come and live among the dirt, the filth of this world, to try to communicate to us. I don't know about you, but I think every time I come to the Lord's Supper, I think about what he's done for us. And this is a time of real worship, real worship. Just because, uh, oh, I forgot to put it in there. Loaf of bread, small loaf of bread. We should be a learning church, a caring church, a worshiping church. Amen? This is what enabled this group of people to change the world. There's a fourth one, a pair of knee pads. Oh, you say, where do you see that? Okay, right here in that verse. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. 
Well, maybe you don't need knee pads, but those knee pads are kind of nice if you're going to do much praying. Praying. How important is prayer? Prayer. Uh, I don't know if you've ever done much thinking about what happened to uh, Paul uh, or Peter. Uh, he, over in Acts chapter 12, I think it is, pretty sure, Acts 12, Peter got thrown in prison by the Roman government. And the chances of him getting out were nil because the Roman government hated Christianity. They hated what Peter and his preaching and what was going on. They had him in prison. They were going to keep him in prison. And they sent four different groups of men to protect him in prison, keep him there. Well, the people, the church, got together over at Mary's house, Mary, the mother of John Mark. And they were praying, God, help Peter to get out of prison. Give us some kind of wisdom. We can help get him out of prison. Oh, God, please help. And we're praying. And there was a knock at the door. Remember that? Well, they didn't want to be bothered, so they sent Rhoda. Hey, Rhoda, go, go answer the door, you know, type thing. So she went over to answer the door. She looked out, and it, it, it's Peter. Oh, she was so excited, she ran back in without even opening the door. Do better than that. Anyway, hey, it's Peter. It's Peter. And they said, honey, 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 please, we're praying for Peter to get out of prison. Now, just relax. You, know, you must have misunderstood. Now, there's praying in faith. We're praying, and he's out. Oh, yeah. And he delivered. They also prayed, and 3,000 people were saved. The power of prayer. But, but is, I don't know. I find it, even in my church, that should know better. I find it. It's sometimes hard to get people out on a Wednesday night to pray. you got all other nights and things they can do, but Wednesday night, come together to pray, just to really pray for our church, pray that there could be souls saved, prayer for different things, prayer. Ooh, how important. Even if it takes knee pads to pray for. What do you pray for? Um, when I was in Petaluma, California, my first church working under Dr. Fred Brock as the assistant pastor and working with young people and so forth. But uh, Dr. Brock took a vacation, was gone for a whole month, and I was there left to preach and, and to perform the funerals. And we had one man die. Dear Mr. Clark died. And uh, I had his funeral. Well, I also got to know his wife. Now, Mrs. Clark, Ruth Clark, was 89 years of age, and she was pretty much confined either to a wheelchair or to home. And she was mostly at home. Very seldom did she get out because of it. But this dear lady was sharp mentally. And every Monday morning she'd call me, Pastor Jim, it's Ruth Clark. What can I pray for this week? And then she'd tell me, now, Pastor, whatever you tell me, I'm not going to talk to anybody but Jesus about. Trust me. And I found I could trust her. And I began to tell her, hey, pray for this kid. He's having trouble in school. He's, he's obnoxious in Sunday school. Uh, we pray that he won't show up. No, I mean, just kidding. <laughs> but, but, you know, pray for this kid. And she'd pray, and it was amazing. He began to change. I tell him, pray for this couple. They're going through real hard times. In fact, they're even facing possible divorce. Pray for them. She'd pray for him. And within about three weeks, we'd see we were able to get things cut through this deal with them and help them in their, their marriage. And that lady every Monday morning would call me. First thing, what can I pray for this week? And she had a whole list that she kept praying for until God answered prayer. 
You may think you can't do much, but you can pray. And what a prayer ministry and help it can be to a, a church. Amen? A learning prayer, a learning church, I mean. Uh, a caring church, a worshiping church, and a praying church. Well, well, there's another thing. Look at verse 46. Verse 46 says what? So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Oh, by the way, that one accord, I want to just throw in an extra thought. This isn't in your notes, but throw this thought in. If you turn to the book of Romans, the 16th chapter, Paul is writing from Corinth to the church at Rome, and he's got some people in this church at Corinth that wants to greet them, and he mentions them, Gaius and Erastus and Quartus, all at the very end of Romans chapter 16. If you think about this, here's Gaius. Gaius was a man that he had led to Christ right there in Corinth, just a common laborer, the average Joe Blow. And then there's this guy, Erastus, and it goes on to say that he is the chamberlain of the city. He's the treasurer of the city. You know what? He's of the social class muckety-muck up, you know, real way up there. And then the last one, Quartus, it means the fourth man. He was a slave on a ship. The fourth man rowing oar, Quartus. He got that name because of it. He's a slave. So here you've got a common laborer, a real high socially treasurer type thing, and a slave. And all of them are worshiping together in one accord. I don't know about your church, but in my church, we are finding that as we are growing, we are having people come from all walks of life. We've had a man and his family come and join our church. In fact, he's preaching for me this Sunday. He's a graduate. He came from India, four years of age. He moved here from India and uh, grew up in, in America. And he went to Western Seminary in Portland, graduated from there with a Master of Divinity and uh, Master of Ministries, he also an AA in Counseling. He went on to another school as he worked in another church as an assistant pastor. And uh, he got his doctorate in organizational leadership in my church. Indian man. Indian family. Great family. Got another family. Escaped from Iran, Iraq or Iran. Iran. Escaped from Iran because of their faith in Christ. They had to because otherwise they paint a, a certain thing on their house and it meant that you could kill them, you could swipe everything they had, whatever, and they had to flee. They got to Turkey and there the United States government helped them get to America. Came to our church. He has a hard time speaking English. She does good, the kids do well, but they come to our church, join our church. We've got Iranians, we got Indians, we got Koreans, we got Japanese, we got Mexican, we got them all. And you know what? It's great to see us in one accord. Would you have any problem having someone different come to your church and be part of your church? I pray you don't. One accord. Do that in extra. Excuse me. All right? Here, we're talking about a pair of sandals. Because it goes on to say, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house. Now, I looked this up in several different translations, hoping I'd find something different. 
Paul says the same thing, house to house. You can't get around it. In other words, they needed some shoes to go house to house, sandals. I'm just throwing that in. Oh, what a ministry it is to not sit here in our churches and wait for the people to come to us, but to realize that, hey, they went out house to house, and they took their doctrine with them. Uh, one of the greatest privileges I had of teaching some of our folks how to lead someone to Christ. You know, you'd think if you've been saved 30 years, you ought to know how to do that, right? But it, it, it's getting started. That's the problem. How do you get started in a conversation? Do you just walk up to them and say, hey, do you know you're going to hell? You know, not, not the best way. Although I, with some guys, it's worked. I don't know. But uh, I usually like to go to a house and I'll say, by the way, we're so glad having you come to our church. Uh, I suppose you guys have a various church background. And out of your background, I'm supposing you know, that they do. I say, if somebody asked you what you thought made a person a Christian, what would you say? And if they say something like, well, yeah, well, uh, I suppose I, maybe what makes you a Christian? Well, going to a church makes you a Christian. And I'll say, well, Christian ought to go to church. You try to agree with them a little bit. And I say, but you know what? Going into a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going into a garage makes you a car. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And I'll say, well, maybe it's just believing in God. Ah, I said, that's right. They certainly ought to believe in God, shouldn't they? But the devil believes in God. He's not a Christian. What makes a person a Christian? And pretty soon they'll look at you and you say, I don't know. And I say, well, you know what? I didn't either for a long time, but let me show you what God says. And I'll turn to Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23 and John 1.12 and Revelation 3 and just share three or four verses of Scripture with them. We're sinners. We're under the penalty of sin. But God sent Jesus to die for us if we just believe in him. And we've had the privilege of leading people to Christ. And that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 47. After they had been doing this house-to-house -house stuff, verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord added them daily, such as should be saved. All because they just used a pair of sandals, shoes, and went door to door. Well, I got one more. You know, this is a wonderful situation. I, I got these pockets, and I can, oh, there it is, okay. And if you look at the next one, it's a, it's a learning church. It's a what church? Caring church. It's a worshiping church. It's a praying church. It's a pair of sandals, visiting church, visiting church. And then in this, next, in this verse 47 also, or 46, it says what? Oh, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God. Have you ever tried to be glad and praising God with a long face? No, you've got to have a smiley face. Uh, I heard about a little girl that went to visit her grandpa and grandma at their farm. And uh, she's just a little girl, maybe six, seven years of age, and, and she went running out to see all the animals, and she came back running, and she says, Oh, guess what? I have just seen the best Christian animal out there. Grandpa said, the best what? The best Christian animal. Which one is it? 
the donkey. Why the donkey? Because he has the longest face, like my pastor. Boy, some people look like they've been baptized with lemon juice. Or used to say that they could eat corn on the cob through a picket fence. Their faces were so long, you know. <laughs> you ever think about what a smile can do? Just smile. Hey, be happy. If you're not happy in Jesus, we sing the song sometimes and you look out in the congregation. Can we be happy? There's a, a man... I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He was an evangelist. His name was Franklin Nathaniel Daniel Buckman. He was a Protestant Christian evangelist, a man of prayer, but he led many people to Christ, and it was mostly because of his happy face. He was just so happy all the time. People would see him, hey, Daniel, how you doing? Good, yeah. They called him, in fact, they even called him the laughing preacher. He just was happy, but he would use that to lead people to Christ. And he had a, a kind of a basic assumption, I guess you'd call it. And I, I should have changed it because it, it says men are sinners, but his idea was mankind. People, people are sinners. This is my number one assumption. If I meet you, you're a sinner. It's okay. I know that. Number two, you can be changed. You can be changed. But get the third one. Confession is prerequisite to change. If you want to become a Christian, it requires confession. Confession of what? Sin. Just to recognize, I'm a sinner. I cannot get to heaven because of my sin. I am separated from God because of my sin. But if I will confess my sin, God will forgive me. And he goes on to the next one. The changed soul has direct access to God. If you're willing to just say, Lord, forgive me, you got direct access. You don't have to go through the preacher or the priest. The age of miracles is still alive. See, it's a miracle every time a person's saved. And we're still living in the age of miracles. God is still saving people. And then I love this one. Those who have been changed must change others. We're in debt. Jesus saved us. We're in debt to, to take the word of, of, of God to other people, to help others come to know Christ, even as we have. Somebody told us. And so we ought to do that too. Well, beloved, it's been a simple message. Great passage of scripture. A lot of things that we could learn from it and apply. And guarantee there are things that will really help to change the world. All four of them, I mean six of them, a learning church, a caring church, a worshiping church, a praying church, a visiting church, and a happy church. I pray that First Baptist Church of Ferndale will be that as I pray for my church in Tacoma. Thank you for letting me come and be with you. God bless you.